Hi, this is David. Eating right is often hard these days, but eating better is easy with Factor's ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. With Factor, there's no prep and no mess. Their meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Plus, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. What are you waiting for? Discover Factor's wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash living50 and use code living50 to get 50% off. That's code living50 at factormeals.com slash living50 to get 50% off. Thank you. Welcome to the Inspirational Living Podcast. Today's reading was edited and adapted from The Road to Seventy Years Young, or The Unhabitual Way, by Emily Mulkin Bishop, published in 1909. A kind of mental laziness, which for lack of a better term may be called an inertia of the will, is perhaps the chief cause of old age. It is easy to dawdle mentally, for no action of will is required when the wheels of thought aimlessly revolve in accustomed grooves. Such come-as-you-please thoughts are practically automatic, the undirected response to some stimulus. Directed thinking to some definite end, which is the only kind of thinking that makes for the retention of mental vigor, requires effort. If you are going to use your mind, use it with all your heart. A virile will takes the initiative. It is pioneering, daring, and definite. Inertia of the will manifests instead in such mental habits as treadmill thinking, mooning about, and vain longings. During the early part of life, the strong stimulus afforded by school and college, study and sports, by the first few years of aggressive business and professional life, are sufficient to keep the brain quite generally active. But as time goes by, the early stimuli no longer stimulate. The result is that the average person of 40 years thinks and feels principally in ruts, and thoughts and emotions control their acts. It is well occasionally to take an inventory of our stock of ideas, of our staple lines of thought, 
and to close out those that have become dead stock. To make room for the new, out must go the old prejudices, the antiquated ideas, the old business methods. True, this is setting a task that is difficult for some people, but what matter does it make if growth follows? Now, it may seem like we are losing a part of our very selves to give up certain long-cherished ideas, for our opinions and habits of thought are very intimately associated with our identity. But if our mental furnishings have become shabby, no matter what their associations, they must be discarded. As it's been said, angels must go, that archangels may come. If there be people who are intellectually and spiritually immune to a new idea, the knell of their youth has already sounded. Continued aliveness of the human mind is dependent not alone on vigorous mental exercise in some one direction, but equally so on diversity of exercise. In fact, to exclusive thinking along any one line jeopardizes the mind's adaptability, its power to rebound from shock and stress. All of the so-called faculties must be frequently brought into play, else the mind as a whole suffers. And no part of our physical equipment needs more discreet guidance than does the imagination. Not the logical faculty, but the imagination is king over us, says Carlyle. The imagination is the creative power of the mind, and as such plays the leading role in many a life drama. Its creations are by no means confined to symphonies, poetry, pictures, and wonderland romances, nor to discoveries, inventions, and scientific investigations. Many a person who declares and honestly believes that they have no imagination is largely controlled by their imagination, which not infrequently is perverted and distorted. Suspicion, cynicism, hypersensitiveness, and melancholy are some of the misshapen children of a perverted imagination. The fear rut is crowded with people whose imagination has been allowed to run wild. Having no legitimate field of exercise, the imagination plays fantastic havoc with the everyday affairs of life. Regular patrons of the fear rut fear the impossible as well as the possible. They fear the things that have been, that are, that are to be, and are not to be. Thus do they exclude the present joy and invite future misfortune. People fear old age and dependence, and by doing so, they not only hasten oldness, but in their imagination, live in the poor house today. These are the poor in spirit who are not blessed. 
every person who worries is in some degree the victim of a perverted imagination. For what is worry but mentally crossing bridges before one comes to them? Or in imagination, repeatedly rehearsing something that has or has not occurred. Now you may be saying to yourself, yes, that is quite true of the many needless worries which people indulge in, but what about worry where there is good cause? Well, let me tell you, there is never good cause for worry. Every intellectually honest person will acknowledge that by no process of reason can worry be proven to be advantageous or justifiable. Worry is loss of mental poise as much as a fit of temper is and also quite as devitalizing. Squarely facing a difficult situation, whether it be a temporary one or an abiding one, and clearly thinking out the best possible way of meeting it with the resources at one's command, is a radically different mental process from worry. One is organically constructive, the other organically destructive. An atrophied imagination means, at best, a commonplace, unresourceful, materialistic person. One who deals in nothing but facts, whose mental reach does not extend beyond the immediate report of their five senses. The practical is the only goal for which such a person strives. They are incapable of seeing those that are beyond. Practicality is a sturdy and worthy characteristic. Every nature needs somewhat of its steadying influence, for without it one is subject to every erratic fanciful impulse. But to allow oneself to be buried in the rut of practicality means death to one's higher powers. Ruts of self-depreciation, self-pity, and pleasure are also ruts of feeling and thinking to which we surrender our youth. Self-depreciation is a kind of paralyzing negation. Continued indulgence in it produces a physical sluggishness and loss of vital tone, while its mental effect is to obscure the judgment and gradually undermine the will. Often it is our very own willpower that we will attack. We seem to find a weak will a convenient scapegoat. For every shortcoming, we will say, Oh yes, I know, but my will is weak. I can't help it. Every time someone thinks and speaks like that, the power of resistance, mental and physical, is lowered. If I were to realize that the muscles of my back or arm were weak, would it be rational for me to say, well, I will strengthen them by persistently dwelling on what weak, good-for-nothing muscles they are? Of course not. Rather, the sane thing to say is, if they are weak, 
then they must be strengthened by exercises that will invigorate and rebuild them. I better get started on that now. Apply that same line of reasoning to your mental states. If your willpower is vacillating or halting, how shall you strengthen it? Certainly not by dwelling upon its weakness. The right psychological treatment would be to make and remake a positive statement. To think and say, My will can be toned up by exercise, and it's going to be. I cannot afford to go back on myself. Remember that our years, rightly lived, should bring a multiplication, not a relinquishment, of interests. Even that which is very familiar contains something new for us if our senses are not dimmed. The musical scale has only eight fundamental notes, yet every piece of music illustrates a new use of the old. From new combinations arise new harmonies. Surely this world and its wonders and mysteries are sufficient to hold our interest for a lifetime, stretching the span as best one may. There are certain emotional ruts that lead precipitately to old age. These are ruts of anger, malice, envy, jealousy, suspicion, despondency, sadness, and grieving. Antagonistic feeling of whatever order is aging. It is physiologically contracting, inhibitive. It interferes with the free functioning of the vital processes upon which health and youth depend. A depressed feeling of whatever order is also aging. It is physiologically degrading. It lowers the tone of the entire system. Hopeful, joyous feeling of whatever order is upbuilding. It is physiologically magnetic and vitalizing. It makes for the harmonious activity of the whole body. We cannot afford to carry chips on our shoulders, nor unkindness in our hearts, nor afford to be morose or despondent, nor afford the quote, luxury of grief. The boomerang tendency of our thoughts and actions is suggested by the poet Walt Whitman when he says, The song is to the singer and comes back most to him. The teaching is to the teacher and comes back most to him. The theft is to the thief and comes back most to him. The love is to the lover, and comes back most to him. The gift is to the giver, and comes back most to him. It cannot fail. A youthful spirit is likewise imperiled by emotional apathy and repression. All the higher emotions, joy, love, hope, courage, are physically invigorating. No venture is more hazardous 
than to assume a neglectful attitude toward matters of the heart. If we think we shall reserve our love and sympathy until something worthy of it turns up, we shall waken some day to the bitter realization that we have lost the power to feel keenly that we are hard and old at heart. Neglect a faculty, and in time it will neglect you. It is the part of higher and worthy living not to allow ourselves to be either indolent or ignorant concerning the welfare of the mind and body. As the years crowd us, the greater is the need to provide new stimuli for vitalizing reactions. Who can say that if such new stimuli were abundantly provided during all the days of our years, that our bodies would need ever fall into decrepitude? Does someone protest, saying, it is foolish optimism to suggest such an unscientific possibility? With advancing years, the body must, unavoidably, lose its plasticity, must take on the characteristics of old age. Well, perhaps these physiological transformations are not preventable, and then again, perhaps they are. It will take a few generations of people, who have lived according to the habit of the unhabitual, to test my hypothesis. Meanwhile, today faces us, and it is certain that how we react from the stimuli that life offers will materially affect our own future history. Anyone who, for a few years, personally makes the test of getting out of ruts and keeping out of them, the test of cultivating the habit of the unhabitual in thought, feeling, and act, will discover that such living makes for protection against infirmity, dementia, feebleness, and the early onset of, quote, old age. And better than simply knowing this fact, you yourself will be a personal demonstration of it.